0: Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. Mm-hmm. Joining us on this episode of the podcast, we have joining from Gardner, Montana, over Zoom. He is the one of the co-founders of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker, and he's a field biologist out in Gardner, Montana. Uh, used to work for the Yellowstone Wolf Project, Nathan Varley. Nathan. Awesome to have you with us. How's everything going up there in Gardner on this Christmas Eve?
1: Everything is wonderful. Yeah, very peaceful, very serene. quiet time here. Uh, we love it. so yeah everything is wonderful.
0: That's awesome. Do you have it Do you have any of the do any of the packs migrate their way up to where you are or do you typically see them when you go back towards the park?
1: Yeah. So uh, I live in a little town that's a little town. It's about a thousand people and we sit on the doorstep of the park. We literally have the park boundary kind of a few blocks away from where I live. And um, generally what, what happens in the winter is, is wolves come by, they come through the hills near town and uh, we can hear them howling sometimes at night. Uh, That's a treat. You know, it's not every night, of course. Uh, which is which is nice. It kind of adds to the ambiance of, of living in a you know a wilderness sort of frontier town on the edge of Yellowstone. <laughs> uh, in the summertime, you know we have a million people passing through this little town, wow. uh, all coming to see the park. And the wolves are a little bit more up in the forests and the mountains at at that time. But but this time we're kind of reminded. Uh, of how close they really are to us here, uh, when especially when we hear them howling near town.
0: When you, I, I want to get into your your background because your family was fully uh, in Yellowstone. I mean, I believe it was three, three generations, uh, or three decades uh, of being park guides at Yellowstone and you just were sort of, you grew up in that atmosphere. What was that like for you growing up as a kid?
1: Right, um, so I did grow up in the park and that was because my parents migrated to yellowstone in the in the 70s early 70s uh to take jobs with the national park service the, the 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 federal agency that that does the administrating of the park itself and so i was one of the lucky few people that got to grow up in the park uh, a little different for sure but uh, a lot of it was very similar to i think you know however other people got to 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 grow up you know I went, went to school and um Experienced a lot of the same things, but 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 Yellowstone uh, is home. It's it's what it's what I know the best, and and and, and uh, as you describe, uh, my family has been here for for decades now, and uh, we we just we just love it. It's it's like deep roots sunk into the uh, to the to the earth uh, of Yellowstone, and uh, as much as we love other parts of the world, and there are many. Fantastic places to to go and visit. We'll will always come home to Yellowstone.
0: What's what's a memory that sticks out for you at that young age? That you something that sticks out when you were young that that you remember? Like, man, this is this is a different way to grow up. Yeah,
1: for sure. I I, I knew that I was vaguely aware of. Um, other people didn't probably have to deal with things like this, but you know, we walked to school from. Our, our house to the elementary school and we would sometimes have to reroute around where uh wildlife were especially uh, herds of elk like you just can't walk through a herd of elk uh, uh, as little kids uh without expecting some trouble um and, and so there were things like that where you might have to be a little late to school um Uh, We'd go out to recess, you know, you could play outside and we, we love to play a good game of kickball. Um, But sometimes you just can't play if the elk have occupied the kickball court, like they're all scattered (laughs) around the playground and, uh, (laughs) The teachers would still like, yeah, you got to go out. You just got to avoid the elk. <laughs> and so, well, we can't play kickball. They're all standing around all <laughs> the, the entire course or the the, the, the field. So, <laughs> so there were things like that where just <laughs> you just knew you were in Yellowstone because of the the wildlife uh, and things like that.
2: How have you sort of seen the culture around wolves and maybe even the politics or the uh, conservation around wolves change since you were that young?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because I I actually got to experience the return of wolves to Yellowstone. And uh, the brief history of of wolves in the park is that they were one of the few species of wildlife that was actually killed out of the park by the administrators at the time. It It would be like the rangers were killing off wolves because that's what they thought their job was, that that that, that's the right thing to do is is kill off the bad animals to protect the good animals. Uh, And so animals like coyotes and wolves and mountain lions were were exterminated uh, in the early 1900s. and, and, And wolves as a population were completely eradicated from the park. And so I lived much of my youth without wolves being in the park. That was, that just wasn't a part of the park. And in fact, uh, other carnivores like mountain lions and and grizzly bears were extremely rare then. And what I've gotten to see in my lifetime is the return of those animals, like the, 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 the recovery of all of those populations. uh, And with particularly within the last two or three decades, (laughs) which has been marvelous. And, and, and probably the biggest part of that is the, the reintroduction of Wolves to Yellowstone in the mid-90s was, was something that I kind of followed in the 80s as a possibility, frankly, as a possibility that I didn't think would actually happen because of political pressure and uh, uh, the, the powers that be were just just not going to allow this controversial predator to be brought back to even places like Yellowstone where there was public right. support for it. But 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 it did happen and it might have been kind of a stars aligned and politically <laughs> things were, were were good for that in the mid-90s and the and, and reintroduction happened and I was lucky to be involved with that, to kind of get involved with uh, the recovery effort itself when, when wolves were first captured in Canada and brought to Yellowstone and, uh, and released into the park. And since then, you know, I've gotten to watch, I've been able to watch the population grow over the last 25 years or so. And and, and that's been really, really remarkable. Um, There was a lot of controversy at first, but, but to really kind of see how that has evolved uh, is the population recovered. And I think a lot of people just simply got used to the fact that, hey, we're living with another large carnivore on the landscape. Um, There's some challenges, uh, but they're certainly not insurmountable. And we frankly have bigger problems to solve than just having wolves on the landscape. So I would characterize, you know, the current mindset of the culture in and around the park as being like, you know, wolves are a mixed bag. There's a lot of people that benefit from them. Others that that have challenges related to wolves. But honestly, they're not that big a deal. In fact, they're kind of cool, you know, especially amongst a certain crowd that really that really celebrate the fact that wolves are around. And of course, I'm one of those people, so, yeah, I, mean, uh, so I really celebrate having the wolves back. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Tell us about your role in that in those in that reintroduction project. I know you were there right from the beginning, so I know they captured the wolves up in Canada and they brought them down. So, what is your role in the reintroduction part of it?
1: Right, um, I got to. I was fortunate to play a role in, in the reintroduction, but, it, but I would kind of characterize it as a, as a small sort of utility level role where, um, there were a lot of people that I knew at the time that that did the heavy lifting in terms of the the politics and the management and and some of the more difficult things to allow it to happen. Uh, I was a young wildlife biologist at the time. I happened to be unemployed. Uh, I happened to uh, be living with my parents in Yellowstone just to kind of figure out my next move. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I volunteered, Uh, I I said, hey, can I help out? I have biology skills, I can track animals, that kind of thing, Um, let me help. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to get involved with, with the Wolf Recovery Project. And that was, like I say, it was, it was a lot of the behind the scenes utility work where, you know, somebody had to hack apart these frozen carcasses to feed to the wolves. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, initially wolves were, were kept in acclimation pens and then, then released. And so, so there was a bit of taking care of animals that we did that, that involved things like Uh, taking frozen carcass parts on snowshoes for about three miles up a a snowy hillside. So, so I got to do, you know, glamorous work like that. Yeah. But it it really was um, exciting to, to contribute to, to, to that effort and, and then to track the, after they were released track the packs that were free roaming in the park uh, Mm. in the late nineties was really an eye opener. I think, for all of the the field of wildlife biology, because we just hadn't quite seen or observed wolf packs in an open grassland system where you can actually observe behavior occasionally and and, and really get uh, an unprecedented view of wild wolves doing what they do out there. So that was exciting too, is knowing that we were we were not only on the frontier of wolf conservation and recovery, but also on the frontier of wolf, wild wolf science in terms of like what do we know about these animals and, and how do they operate.
0: Yeah, I mean when you guys start that that reintroduction, there has to be a lot of. I'm sure there were. So many challenges, and, like you said, so many different data points that you guys almost had to create because i f- this is really the first effort with the with the wolf, at least in North America, where there's an actual species now to study. So while you were saying, yeah, you're just cutting up you know c- frozen carcasses and dragging. I mean, that's a huge undertaking. and and the amount of I'm sure pa- you know manpower and people power to have that happen to to assimilate them to this park had to be you know really really massive it
1: it was a big effort and there there were so many people involved and 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 it's it's like a community or a family now in terms of uh, the way we've 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 kept in touch um but but exciting from the standpoint of 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 like okay let's let's uh let's study this wolf, these wolves let's let's monitor the population as it recovers. And we had footsteps to follow in terms of just classic studies of wild wolves in places like Isle Royale, uh, right. Minnesota. And, and wolves had been studied in places like that in Alaska. Uh, and they pioneered a lot of the techniques you might, you might uh, use in terms of a wolf study. But I think a lot of those never incorporated observation. That is, they didn't really see their study subjects very much at all. And here we were releasing wolves and they were running free in the park, and we were actually watching them. We were watching them uh, interact with each other, so learning about <laughs> their social dynamics. And we were watching them interact with prey species, so learning about, like, well, how exactly do they kill an elk, for example. Uh, and so we knew pretty early on that what we were seeing was. Rare was exciting, and so uh, that really sped up the the um, adaptation to to like how are we going to study these guys? And and it took a much bigger emphasis on observation, and actually, uh, I should say a combination. We really kind of kept. A lot of the same techniques that those older studies that are very good studies uh, did, but also combined that with our ability to observe uh, the animals in action. And the, and the combination there, I think, has re- revealed um, some, some really interesting new things about, about wolves uh, in the last 20 or so years.
2: Mm, do, you, do you remember anything that was particularly surprising that concepts that people were just starting to learn about that were, you know, unusual?
1: Yeah, I think um, I, I think some of the main scientific findings about Yellowstone that really, to me, characterize like, well, what, what what do we know that's different? And and it's this idea that uh, in a protected area where humans don't have the largest effect on the mortality of the wolf population, then we see a self-sustaining, self-regulating wolf pack uh, dynamic where the competition, the competitiveness of different wolf packs uh, dictate the mortality levels in the population so that if there are a lot of wolves around, they're more likely to kill one another. And the fewer wolves that are around, the less likely that is to happen. So they're, in a sense, regulating their own numbers on the landscape. And we kind of got to cut to view that in terms of these interactions between packs and how uh, very dramatic and sometimes very violent sometimes where uh, wolves would kill other wolves. And we we're actually seeing how that happens, how it is that, oh wow, you know, wolves will keep their own numbers in checks because the more often these packs bump into each other, the more often we're likely to see them, kill one another. Uh, and that's very significant. And, and, and it was theorized that that was the case with wild wolf populations where there wasn't a lot of human-caused mortality. Uh, but but seeing in Yellowstone really has cemented the idea that, that wolf populations are self-regulating. And we really don't have to worry about them in a sense like, like overpopulating uh, in an ecological sense. I mean, there may be too many wolves to have around for humans, but but in terms of the the prey and the landscape community, they're fine. They're gonna they're gonna keep their own numbers balanced with with what's out there, with what's available to them in terms of resources.
0: So when you reintroduce them into the park, because you also studied elk populations and, and I, th- I think a little bit of bison. So what were some of the things first going to initially? The, the elk population. And I know that was, it was really just overpopulated. And then once the, the wolf population started to rise a little bit and started to change the dynamics of the elk, what were some of the, the effects that you saw with that initially and what you see now, 25 years later?
1: Yeah, this is a, this is a good topic for me because um, I think I could, I can really draw upon the experience of my youth to say that I grew up around some of the highest elk density that we've ever seen in the world in Yellowstone park and in, in Northern Yellowstone park, uh, there were literally tens of thousands of elk uh, populating the grassland forest interface. And, and that was definitely the case in the seventies and eighties when I was, I was a young man. Uh, Wolves were reintroduced in the nineties and that's their primary uh predator uh as well as grizzly bears recovered at the same time and other, other predators like mountain lions uh as well and so with the recovery of all these these predators we watched the elk population decline and that was very interesting to 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 see how that would happen and to make a long very very complicated story kind of short is that now we have a very healthy population that's in much more moderate numbers. Um, you know, we still may have 10,000 elk out there, uh, but they're broken up into much smaller groups, which are harder to detect and find for predators. Uh, they are composed much more of younger animals that are more fit, more productive. Um, we really saw the age structure of this elk population, um, Change entirely in terms of like the number of old individuals that were out there in the nineties. You know, twenty years later, uh, it's rare to find an animal, an elk that's you know over twelve years or fifteen years old. And if there is one out there, that's the one that the wolves are most likely to find and kill. And so uh, they change the age structure; they reduce the population size. But that overall is, is is an ecologically beneficial. Hmm. aspect of predation that they, they actually are making a stronger, a fitter, a more resilient elk population that I still find perfectly numerous. Um, Some people complain like, Oh yeah, they they decimated the elk population, but (laughs) no, there's still a lot of elk out there. They're just harder to find. And the few, the fewer of them that are out there are in better condition. So it's a lot, it's, it's a, it's a, if interesting and, and, and detailed story uh, that we could go into, but that I could sum up as being like, they made the elk population more healthy.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you just talk about that early on, when, when there's that many, when the, elk populate, when the elk density is that large, what are the effects that, that took upon the landscape before those predators not just the wolf but the grizzly bear and the mountain lion that started to come back what were those effects that were taking taking shape on the landscape until those those predators started to come back
1: this is a good uh, is a good topic because the effect that large numbers of elk in particular were having uh, in Yellowstone was one that was that was studied intensively. It was probably the number one wildlife issue for much of the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even earlier than that. Um, the management question in Yellowstone is, 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 we have too many elk, what should we be doing to... Mitigate that, um, and what are the actual problems of having too many elk? And so there were a lot of vegetation studies, and and we were seeing probably indirect effects on other herbivores and 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 whole communities that were declining because of the dominance that elk would have as a big as a large herbivore on the landscape. And so that was that was the the main question that scientists were grappling with uh, for many decades in the park, uh, managers as well. And so, with the recovery of these predator species uh it it the dynamic changed pretty pretty quickly and 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 now we're we're studying more of like well what was the effect of of having these large native predators restored um and the answer we're getting comes back to this idea that if you remove the dominance of this large herbivore, it allows more resources for other species to benefit and we see a more moderate abundance of a wider variety of species Um, biodiversity is a great term to use because it 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 simply um, stimulates biodiversity in the sense that we have more species in moderate numbers rather than uh, a greater uh, dominance of, uh, of the one herbivore species. So wolves have come in and, and, and uh, mediated uh, the relationship between elf, elk and all these other community members uh, to the point where we kind of feel like there's more of an ecological balance going on out there. A very dynamic balance. It doesn't mean that things don't change. They're changing all the time. It's just the relative to the past, we're seeing much more moderate numbers of all species rather than a few that are very, very dominant. That's how I would characterize it.
2: Mm, And then it, it sounds like smaller groups spread out over larger areas might be less harsh on each landscape or small ecosystems.
1: Yes, absolutely, and that's just one of the adaptations that that elk have, have done to to uh, lower their their probability of, of of predation and take advantage of the available resources and, and so we used to see herds of thousands of elk, and it was impressive and I, and I can see why people have some nostalgic feeling around the ideas. I used to come to Yellowstone and see thousands of elk, and that is impressive. Um, but we don't see that anymore. We, we, we see, you know, groups of a dozen or two dozen or something like that. And, and they're moving around a lot. And I think that's just the way elk evolved. And it's probably mm. more of a natural state or condition for them, which I like seeing. Um, I enjoy seeing elk in that numbers. And and if you want to see thousands of animals, then come here to see the bison. (laughs) um, This may be related. Uh, We don't know. It may not be. But uh, with the reduction of elk, uh, at the same time, we've seen an increase in the bison numbers. And also uh, more recently, it appears that wolves are taking bison as prey more often than they used Mm. to, which is exciting for us to see, too.
2: How do biologists survey, or how do they formulate a projection of how many elk, you know, per year, or how many elk per wolf are being killed?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, people that are a little bit more into the uh, into the the fine grain detail of these studies can kind of get it down to kilogram kilogram of elk per wolf mm-hmm. per year. Um, and, they, and I think what I would say about what I've read of their material is there is it's a highly variable number. And so we know that the population of wolves fluctuates, the conditions under which uh, their success rate varies uh, will also vary. So um, some years they may get a lot, some years they may get make very few. And with the availability of alternate prey like bison and deer uh, and, and a dozen other species that may show up in the samples of what wolves kill, uh, we know that there's a lot of switching that can go on. And and uh, the, the the sum result of all that, I think, is that if, if elk become fairly scarce uh, in a certain area at a certain time, and wolves would switch off to something else, which allows those wolf, those elk to kind of grow back into that. Um, and, and so there's kind of a, a counterbalancing dynamic, I think, that we've seen go on there. And uh, one of many things I think that these predation studies have gotten at is, is that, and, and also trying to give more context to this question of, well, if if a wolf kills 20-some elk a year, um, aren't we going to run out of elk? And it's like, well, that's only one piece of a very large equation that's very dynamic. And so more often than not, then no, <laughs> uh, more often we see that that number is quite sustainable and an elk population can even grow modestly with wolves consuming that many elk. Uh, And so (laughs) uh, it's a complicated uh, dynamic for sure. And I'm really glad that in Yellowstone, that that's been an emphasis of the predation studies is to really kind of look at that so that we can draw more context.
0: Yeah. When you're discussing these, say in the general public, when you give tours or guides and things like that, what are the, what are a lot of the talking points you try to hit so that, again there are these uh, notions that people have like you said about wolves about elk and things and what do you try to explain to those in the general public about really the the, the relationship and the uh, and the synergy like you said the balancing act that goes on that it's actually a healthy thing for for this to happen well
1: it, it, with our ecotourism enterprise we we are very dedicated to giving people as much of the current science, uh, getting at that, you know, cutting edge of wolf information that, that we, that we have here in Yellowstone. Um, that's kind of a goal of ours. And if you take the actual clientele that we have, um, there's quite a wide range there. Um, sometimes we're just kind of starting out with some of the basics and, and giving them that. and, uh, other people that may have quite a scientific background, we can, we can get into the details and, and really talk about, uh, some of the data here in Yellowstone. Um, but overall, you know, we want to teach people about the wolves. We have a lot of information about them. Um, but kind of start with, with where they're at. You know, a lot of people have conceptions of wolves, um, and, a lot of them actually can be very, very pro-wolf. Like, um, like, are they really predators? It's like, yeah, yeah, they, they kill things. <laughs> they kill a lot of things. Like, that's what they do for a living, <laughs> you know? So sometimes it's that kind of a dynamic, right? <laughs> um, I think one of the most exciting things that I can share um, is the most common reaction I get when maybe people that have looked forward to kind of seeing a wolf in the wild finally do And they'll say something to the effect that, well, they just seem like dogs. It's like, yeah, that's where dogs came from. <laughs> yeah. So, so the connection of figuring out that wolves are like wild dogs is is like yes, <laughs> exactly. Like our fascination around wolves, it really comes from our affection for dogs, or I think they're related anyway. Yeah. Um, that that might not be all of it, um, yeah. but it, but it really is an exciting moment for them to kind of make the connection between the dogs that we live with and these like mysterious animals that they've looked <laughs> forward to seeing you know, since they booked the tour last year. Uh, And and that that to me is just kind of fun to kind of make that connection between man's best friend and the mysterious wild wolf. Usually the same animal with uh, a a, a few differences. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, we love to talk about the science uh, whenever people are, you know, have an appetite for listening to some of the, the complex stuff. And I can uh, relate one more anecdote for you that, um, that probably, maybe you 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 all get it at Wolf Connections, which, uh, you know, uh, is another wonderful educational uh, facility and, and program going on that you guys have there. Uh, is this, um, you know, on YouTube, it has 40 million views. It's like, well, how do wolves change rivers, right? It's like a pop. Popular media thing that's out there that kind of describes the ecological theory behind top predator effects. That if you remove or replace or you know restore a top predator, you're going to get some pretty big trickle down effects. You're going to have a cascade of effects uh, throughout the ecological community, and it may end up actually kind of having an effect on river courses in terms of their vegetation and the other animals that live there. And, and it's a, it's a kind of a wonderful piece in terms of public relations for wolves. It really does say that like they have a role to play. It's important. They're very key ecological agents. If they want to learn more about like, well, how they restored rivers in Yellowstone? Then we can get into a wide body of science that um, has opponents and proponents of this theory saying like, well, you know, here it's not really happening. And over here it really is happening. And and all that does is is tell them and us that there are a lot of other factors that matter as well, that wolves are important. They're not the only factor that's important. Uh, We're dealing with a very dynamic ecosystem where other, factors like climate change have a huge effect on how rivers run, um, and and other wildlife species, uh, uh, other, uh, vegetation dynamics. So there's a lot going on out there. And when you get into splitting hairs around this video, then people (laughs) become like, wow, it's very, really very complicated, isn't it? It's like, Yes. And that's the only thing that the video doesn't tell you is that <laughs> it's super complicated. <laughs> it's really hard to predict any one particular situation that might occur out there. And that, that's true about Yellowstone is that there's places that I can show people like this has changed dramatically in the last 25 years. Look at all the vegetation and the songbirds and the beaver dams. Another place just downriver a couple miles is like this hasn't changed at all. This is really kind of stuck in this other state uh, and wolves aren't really having a big effect on that, but that's because other factors are important here too. So yeah. to them, I think it's a great ecological lesson to bring up the video and then kind of have these different places to see and realize, that, like, oh wow, yeah, there's a lot that goes on in ecology and uh, in the environment.
0: Yeah, there's, there's such a big discussion. Yeah, no, you're right. There's such a big discussion, and Stephen was mentioning before when, when you were when you were responding just beavers because we had a a big group of of individuals that came through, and they they were asking me about wolves that they're um you know one of the one of the most important I guess in that because he was studying biology and ecology. And I said really, I said beavers are another one. I said people don't understand the effect that you know yes the wolves being reintroduced is huge but the beavers were also the ones that are i'm sure for you know forming those rivers and and changing those things around
2: yeah I mean, and i mean from, from a predator perspective like when you're when you're when you're conveying you know the natural order of things some it, it's just it seems some in some way more clear to explain it through the eyes of a predator, then maybe it would be to reverse engineer it from the eyes of a beaver. So I still appreciate the, <laughs> wo- I still I still appreciate the wolves change rivers concept, but definitely. It's important, I think, for anyone to get to that place where they're like wolves change rivers, th- but the complexity of n- of nature and all of these critters on the landscape is like it's a spider web that we'll never be able to untangle completely because it's so nuanced and so niche. It's unbelievable.
1: Absolutely, uh, I couldn't agree more.
2: Yeah,
0: it's it's such a great. So when you when you're talking with everyone because you you said your how did you get how did you intertwine this. Prey and predator species for yourself because you to to be able to study wolves and elk almost simultaneously, and then you know I feel like certain individuals or you know biologists they they stick with a certain path that they stay carnivore maybe or they stick herbivore or whatever it is. How are you able to balance this predator prey study for yourself, and how how does that work for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is great because um, a lot of personal history here is. Um, I'd done some fun studies early on in my life in Yellowstone um, and maybe where I didn't get to see the study subject very often. Um, I'll give the example of a coyote study I worked on where it was kind of hard to find these guys sometimes. Mm. Um, And so a lot of it was left to the imagination put it that way. Uh, other studies that I had later on, you know, I studied Juanacos in South America where I just, we walked out to the study subject and I watched their behavior all day long. <laughs> they weren't hard to find and they weren't hard to stick with. Uh, similarly, I studied moose in Alaska. It was a little a little bit similar. Sometimes you'd have to work harder to find them, you know, in the swamp. But uh, But once you did, like they didn't care if you were there and you got to watch them Uh, chew on willows and look for predators all day and and Hmm. collect data. And so I kind of came to the point where I was like, I'd rather have a study subject that I get to interact with more, more directly. Not that I'm interacting with it, but I'm observing it more readily than these super rare occurrences that some people have to be resolved with in terms of studying their subjects. They're just not going to see them. Um, a lot of my friends here that study mountain lions, it's like, yeah, you know, we're just now getting yeah, to the point where yeah. some of our trail cams are picking up pictures of these animals. And it's like, wow, that's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they're doing great studies because they're kind of getting at their questions in a different, different way without having to observe them. And so, for me, ultimately, getting to the point where um, I studied wolves and got to see them as this nuanced combination of both of those things—that they were occasionally an animal that you would get to see, but often most of your your typical workday would be trying to find them—and uh, so there there was a, there was a good bit of both going on there, and. Um, and I like that. And I particularly like the fact that once I got to see a wolf pack, that they have enough differences in their appearance that you could identify individuals pretty, pretty readily. And I like that a lot. And you probably have that with the Wolves that Wolf Connections. It's just like, you know, I can tell this animal. I don't, it doesn't matter where is that. I can recognize it. And if yeah. we mixed them all up, I could still I still know who's who. <laughs> right which you couldn't necessarily do with elk (laughs) that didn't have (laughs) ear tags or a collar or something like that. Or coyotes even were a little little tough to tell apart. And so I liked being able to identify individuals that really kind of brought out a lot of the uh, personality uh, that was inherent in the study of these animals. Yeah. And so, um, you know if there there was any bit of like well i've studied elk and I've studied wolves and wolves eat elk and it's like no that, that that's all fine with me that's all just this nature's way and uh, as a biologist and ecologist I uh well versed in that and super comfortable with it um, Some of my guests have asked me like well who, who do you root for when the elk, the wolves are chasing <laughs> the elk and it's like um I don't know. It just kind of changes day to day. You know, sometimes I want them to get away and other times I want the wolves to catch them. And, <laughs> and so, and so it just, it just depends on who I think is the underdog at the time. Right. <laughs> so, uh, um, so not no, not a whole lot of, uh, of um, emotional investment in the outcomes of those sorts of things. Just, just a deep fascination with the process itself.
2: I always think, why are there so many biologists who study individual wolves? But I never hear about it with coyotes. And I guess that makes sense. They're just a lot harder to tell apart.
1: But with with our coyote study, and we did this back in the early 90s before wolves were reintroduced to the park. So they were kind of like the top canine in the park. And and, and we had marked individuals, but it was kind of hard to see their markings. And, um, and we could kind of tell them apart if we had a really good look. Um, and they had some distinguishing feature that was helpful. Um, But yeah, most of the time we were kind of left scratching our head. Was like, well, was that six thirteen or was that five eighty nine? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So that was a little frustrating.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. Oh man! So when you so when you transition then from the park and you know your elk work and things of that sort, and you start Wildside LLC, which is sort of adventure travel and tours and things like that what are what was your inclination to go from studying to guiding what was the what was the transition like and what made you want to make that jump for that
1: that's a that's a good story too i think i made the transition from from being a wildlife biologist to to a business owner to to jumping to small business when it became obvious that it was going to be difficult for me to get a job in my field, doing something that I wanted to do and stay in Yellowstone. And there were incredible opportunities to just go into to private practice in a sense, to go into business uh, for myself. Um, I, I, would, I, I got to be part of this wolf recovery thing. And, and as that evolved, it was very apparent that, uh, that a lot of people were going to want to see these guys and not everyone really had the skills to do so. And so there would, there would be this niche that we could occupy to, mm-hmm. to help people observe these animals and other wildlife. Uh, and that has really only grown. Like there was no ecotourism around any animals for the most part in Yellowstone before wolf and grizzly recovery. And now 20 some years later, there's quite an industry which is fascinating in and of itself is that uh, you know Yellowstone has has opened up all these opportunities for people like myself to 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 be in business and to to guide visitors for quality wildlife sightings and what i feel like i've retained is is my lifelong interest in sharing the educational aspects of that. Um, I love working with people, fascinating people with similar interests from all over the world. That's great. Um, Unlike a desk job that you end up being as a wildlife biologist in a lot of situations, uh, I get to kind of stay uh, engaged with what's going on in the field. I get to be out there observing the animals. And I'm not saying for any uh, young wildlife biologists out there that you don't get that chance later on in your career, but um, I'll just put it this way, that a lot of my friends at my age um, do a lot of desk time, uh, a lot of report writing and computer uh, time and and, and spend time on the phone and a little bit less in the field. Mm -hmm. And I saw that coming. And so that was uh, one of the factors that motivated me to, to go in to ecotourism and say like hey you know i i kind of want to stay engaged with with people that are coming here with this interest and i also want to stay in the field and and, and be closer to the animals that really I'm so fascinated with and so those, those two things have kind of gotten me to this point here where I, where I'm at now and as I look back at it i've also kind of embrace the idea that, geez, I, I got to, to live the American dream of kind of starting your own business and letting it flourish and grow um, and, and kind of being our own captains of our own ship. And, the, you know, that's really uh, fascinating too. And a lot of my friends are in, you know, academic positions or work for a big agency, and both of those are Bureaucracy, you know, with a capital mm-hmm. B, uh, whereas I kind of, you know, set my own schedule, do my own thing, and if I want time off, I take time off, and, and there's all kinds of great benefits to just, you know, having your own small business, um, which is, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't go back and and do anything differently at this point.
0: I mean, so when you're, yeah, when you're start, when you're starting this out, because I can, I can see by the way nathan's been smiling basically this entire <laughs> this entire time we've been talking and it just i i see i see the the, the joy with where i feel like this path has taken you and you you like you said you've lived this amazing life up to this point i mean there's still well, you know plenty more to do what do you take from your experience early on when you, t- and you just go through a typical tour that people come and they and they visit you and and what what's what are the things that you try and and have these individuals experience or these groups experience when they come on come to wild side
1: yeah so basically my approach and, and 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 that of our guides is to is to know that a lot of people are coming to yellowstone and hiring us um they don't do this every day like us. Um, It's so easy to be awestruck by the beauty of Yellowstone. You don't really have to be standing in front of wolves to even do that. And so let the magic of the park do its own work. Like we're so Mm -hmm. lucky to be able to guide in a place that's, it's going to do all the work for you. And so our job is just to kind of facilitate in that, um, try to kindle a little bit of curiosity that they may have. If if they ask some questions, wow, great. That's, you know, we want to tell you about that. Um, honestly, if there, there are people that aren't really interested in a whole lot of, um, more detailed information then like, okay. Mm -hmm. Let's you know, tell me what you are interested in There's a ton of people. Let's just talk about their own life, um, but in a in a therapy. And so for us, we try to impart a lot of information, but not at the expense of people like kind of tuning it out at some point. Like you really have to know your audience, and I think that's a quality of some of the best guides is is like, well, who are they talking to, and what are the, what are those people trying to get out of this experience? Knowing that Yellowstone is going to deliver a captivating experience without you really trying to try all that hard. Right. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways we kind of go into each day with a lot of confidence knowing it's going to be a great day. Uh, And maybe to be a great day that's memorable for the guy too. We're going to work extra hard to try to find some animals that aren't easy to find. Um, But Hey, you know, if that doesn't work out, it's still going to be a great day. Right. So, so I feel like um, we kind of win each day we go out and, and and do, maybe you can take it to a, to a level where, um, you know, it's very emotional for people too. They not only learn a lot uh, about their experience, but, um, but they connect with both you and, and with nature. And, and that's what we really go for is that connection.
0: That's awesome. And that, that's something that we, even in in our in our place when yeah. we have tours and we we give people a tour of the facility they they see the wolves and the wolf dogs and they go on a short hike it's amazing the immersion just in really a short amount of time where people can hit all different levels of either emotional physical interactions and have these epiphanies of things that were were yearning inside of them that you didn't realize until they came here to a specific place connected with a certain wolf and had that experience and, and to see it in front as a tour, because I, I give tours as well here at, here at uh, Wolf Connection. And you're right. It's the, when you see that it, it, it gives you uh, like the, the, the butterflies and the goosebumps inside of to see that happen for other people.
1: Absolutely. I, I would see our, uh, uh, our jobs being very similar in that case that um, you have these amazing animals that people can kind of experience a, l- a little bit more intimately right? Um, than we can when often we're reviewing wolves a mile away. It could still work, but boy, you know, you could actually have that you know, <laughs> very intimate physical experience with these animals. And like, of course they're going to have a good time. Of course they're going to, <laughs> you know, be touched by the beauty uh, of this animal. Uh, so yeah, I can, t- I can kind of see our uh, jobs as being, being very similar.
0: Yeah. What do you do when, you, when you're when you out in the, what do the tour guides do to really keep this as natural as possible? I mean, everything you're saying sounds beautiful and amazing. What do you do to keep sort of the natural or the, the integrity of the experience? So it's not a, there's not really much you can force out in nature, but what are some of the steps you guys take to not intrude as as much as you possibly can on the natural beauty of it?
1: Yeah, I think I think one of the pitfalls that we, we do try to avoid is 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 getting our guests into a situation where they're observing or in the middle of an interaction between wildlife and visitors. So Yellowstone can be a crowded place. Uh, wolves are popular, so they're gonna be they're gonna be a lot of people. At times, in those places, looking for the wolves and and you know sometimes with if the wolves are very visible or near the road, there can be these negative interactions where they get, you know, a swarm of people come in and a lot of times, our role is to anticipate that could happen. you know what hey we 're going to go down the road uh, and observe this from a different angle, and maybe all it is is that we 're going to get out of that situation. Because even though the wolf might be closer, it's going to run away from people, which kind of makes people sad. Like, oh, that's too bad that they live in this park where they're chased around by people. Mm -hmm. That's not really how it usually goes. I mean, these wolves live in a huge wilderness area and only bump up against people occasionally. It's just that we don't want to be a part of that moment when they actually do. Because it's not that bad for wolves, but it's sad for people to see. Uh, and so there's dozens of different scenarios like that with with other wildlife um that can happen in Yellowstone It's just boy we kind of want to stay out of that <laughs> um that's a job for rangers to kind of get in and and try to mitigate and and uh and enforce in some cases the regulations of like yeah, no don't disturb the wildlife don't approach the wildlife uh we try to do that of course and that's not too hard for us but to also make sure that they don't observe other people doing it um, is, is an important part of, I think, guiding their experience.
2: Yeah. It's, I think it's hard in uh modern world to see anything that's just untampered with. And I think, uh, you know, it makes the experience of people coming to the wilderness or seeing wild animals for the first time. So beautiful as they just seemed, you know, they seem pure and innocent in some way and then when you start when you start going down the road and seeing this wild animal surrounded by by uh, Jeeps and Hondas and Toyotas it it makes the experience a little bit more synthetic so it I think it takes the wildness out of it and makes it feel synthetic but I think we were talking about this with another guest as well which is just the you know the dichotomy there the 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 push and pull of like this beautiful experiment that is Yellowstone showing the wilderness but then it's also in we're just there's so many of us that it's this hard, you know I don't know what the line is.
1: Yeah, I agree, and it, it, it's hard to say. And I mean, it, it, it's kind of the road corridor. It's that that very narrow, small part, very minuscule part of the park mm. where all the humans are, and the wildlife have the rest of it. So I feel good about yeah. their chances of just maintaining the wildlife. But it's just when that interface that we are in. You know, and they come and encounter it, you know, th- then it just seems like it's disruptive uh, and sad. Um, and, and maybe I could, I could give you one example that, that we get sometimes in the summer. It's like, get the question, we'll drive by and there's all these tripods kind of set up in a semi circle <laughs> right. spot. How they feel. It. You're like, they're like, what are they doing? And it's like, well, they're waiting for a badger to come up out of its hole. So they're <laughs> like, well, we wouldn't do that. We don't recommend anyone does. But it's just kind of how things evolve when a when a badger goes into a hole and everyone finds out. Um, Badgers are wonderful animals. They'll stay in underground all day. No (laughs) problem. But until rangers kind of get onto that situation, and they do, they literally like clear them out and put up signs like, this area is closed because there's a badger over in the hole. And otherwise... they'll surround it with tripods. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> but but um, I will say this is that, you know, one of the most um, underappreciated uh, qualities of Yellowstone is its wilderness. And, yeah. and it's 2.2 million acres. Only 1% of that is developed or has roads through it. So like um, my favorite thing to do as a pastime is is to explore wilderness and actually take like off trail routes through the park And that's where I think you can come up with some of the most memorable and touching interactions with with wildlife is just when you actually encounter them more on their terms. Um, And and full disclosure, I mean, sometimes you can disturb them too because they're not really ready for you to be out there Mm -hmm. with them. And so few people are that it's not a big overall impact to them. But it it is magical when you can maybe observe uh, undisturbed some wildlife out in the wilderness area area because then there's none of that like well what are the crowds gonna do kind of dynamic going on around it so um, and I will put out also this little addendum to to watching Wolves in the Park is that it can so often happen where there's literally hundreds of people lined up along a roadside area watching wolves in the park. And those wolves are perfectly undisturbed. They're out a mile away. Everyone can see them from different angles along the road. It works very well because the wolves are going about what wolves do. Uh, The people are getting to enjoy them and see them and come and go at their own, you know, vacation pace. Um, And, it just works. It's like there's no disturbance. They're, they're, the wolves, of course, are vaguely aware that there's like, yeah, crowds of people over there, but we're not over there, so we don't care. And they just go about, you know, playing and wrestling and eating on a carcass and wolf things. Uh, and it works. I mean, day in and day out, that's kind of how I would describe the dynamic in the park. So it, it it's really is a good thing that, 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 that the wolves of Yellowstone can – can kind of service so many people's interests in in them without being disturbed very often.
0: Mm, yeah, those are the, those are a lot of what I got. i, I read Rick McIntyre's uh, when he he wrote about Wolf Eight and Wolf Twenty One, and that was a lot of what he was writing about. Is that the the joy that he was able to elicit from helping people view wolves in a way that they would have never been able to do so. And yet still keeping that barrier and letting them have that space and, and be able to be wolves and not sort of a, an attraction. I think is it's such a delicate balance that you all do so well over there in your own ways.
1: Uh, absolutely. And it, it's well managed. It's, um, it, it, you know, it's imperfect. Yes. But, it, but I think day in, day out, it kind of delivers an experience that many people will kind of latch onto and remember their whole lives or even like, okay, I gotta come back and do this again. Mm. It was just so cool to get to see those wolves and and uh yeah that 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 idea of distance uh and using optics very key for for a Yellowstone wildlife experience. Um having a spotting scope and binoculars uh and a guide uh really helps too. But mm. uh but yeah I think I think it's working because we do manage it for those qualities.
2: Yeah. This is a question I've never asked any of our guests, but I'm super interested. Why is it that Yellowstone is this massive landscape with all this, this deep wilderness that no one's out in? Why, what is it about that area that keeps them coming there, even though they're generally weary of, of, of people?
1: Right, right. We all, um, it's, it is it, it is this. It's that uh, you do find wolves in some of those areas where there are a lot of people nearby. They can see them from the road. There are also wolves in areas that there are no people at all. And so, mm. in a sense, the Yellowstone landscape is fairly saturated with wolf pack territories. Mm. So they're in, they're in both places. Um, and, and wolves can't have a choice. Like, where do they want to be in their territory? And they're very seldom found within a couple hundred yards from the road, very Mm. seldomly because of the people. Um, But they have no problem, some packs that have gotten used to people and the the roads and knowing what that's all about are perfectly fine being a half a mile or more away from the road. And that just kind of happens to be our average distance of observation, somewhere between a half mile and a mile. And so a place like Lamar Valley is both good, wildlife habitat. So sure, a wolf would want to be there. Uh, and it's very open and visible along the road so that you can set up a spining scope and view a wolf pack that's a mile away, undisturbed by the people watching it. And so Lamar Valley is just one of several or many places in Yellowstone that, that has that kind of quality you know, it's a good place for wolves to be Mm -hmm. and their prey. Uh, it's a great place for people to view them because the road happens to go through there and you can stop along it and view things that are a mile away. Uh, so a lot of the mountain valleys are, are like that. Um, and some mountain valleys that don't have roads also have wolf packs, same kind of, kind of dynamic actually um and then they, within that they can choose to go wherever they want in their territory And some days unfortunately they are off in the forest or high up in the mountains we can't find them we can't see them it's like oh darn but mm. that's the true nature of wolves is they move around and they don't care whether we get to see them or not. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> and so there. But it's comforting to know that they're just they're just doing what wolf packs do: is kind of move around their territory and 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 they hang out in the places that they like the most that have the most resources. And and so some of those places just happen to be where we can observe them.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's um, other
1: places, other national parks that are, you know, very forested, like Voyagers and Boundary Waters and places in the the, the North Woods. Um, wolves all over that country, but you just don't get to observe them because it's all forested and flat. And, the, and it just doesn't have that same landscape that Yellowstone has that, that really does enhance the ability to observe the animals.
0: Mm. Oh, that's... Does that answer your question? Yeah.
2: So do you you ever see pack conflicts in Lamar Valley? Like do other packs that are are deep in the forest come out to those areas near the road and get into conflicts there? Or is it always sort of cross country?
1: Yeah. I mean, they they can happen anywhere in the park. Um, uh, I've seen some of the most dramatic clashes between wolf packs I've ever seen in my whole life in Lamar Valley just happens to be a place that you know wolves want to go and it's got some great travel routes and a lot of elk and bison habitat and uh and so they they roam through there and throughout the course of watching wolves through the through the years um yeah i've seen some pretty amazing interactions uh between wolf packs you know right there from the roadside in in lamar valley or or Slough Creek, or Blacktail Plateau, or Hayden Valley. Uh, I mean, there really is quite a number of places throughout the park where this works, where you, where you can, can can have one of those sightings. Uh, so yeah, you never know. It, it could happen.
2: That's crazy. Wild place. Yeah. Uh,
0: I have one more question for you, Nathan, before we, we let you go. And I do, I do want to promote uh, Wildside and uh, any social medias you got. When you hear the word wolf, what is something that comes to your mind?
1: That's a big one for me. Um, I I think I'm most captivated with the relationship between those animals and human beings. And it does go back to our highly entwined evolutionary path that, that wolves and humans kind of both evolved together, especially more recently in the last several thousand years, so that we're to the point where you know wolves live with us now, and yet some wolves don't they live out in the in the wilds uh, and don 't have anything to do with us and i just just fascinated with. With that path, the, the 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 they've been so much a part of our of our evolution and early on our success as a species, human success, um, and now like our relation to them is so emotional. You know, it's so so fraught. It's so polarized at times uh, uh, with you know the value of these animals versus the you know the the folklore and the challenge of living with them. Uh, So when I, when I hear wolf, I, I really don't ever think of just one thing, but rather this kind of dichotomy relationship of our, of our love, hate relationship, humans, love, hate relationship with the species, canis lupus. Mm -hmm. Wow.
0: That's a, that's a, that's a first. I love it. Um, Nathan Please tell us, uh, tell everybody out there who's listening where, uh, do you have any social media to plug? Instagram, things like that, where people can find you and then tell everyone how, if they are out your way and they want to tour on Wildside uh, with you and, and Linda, let them know. So go ahead, floor is yours.
1: Awesome, yeah. So um, so look us up on the web, um, wolftracker.com and uh, you'll see that, Yellowstone you know, Wolf Tracker offers programs year-round, and we it, it kind of ranges from our basic guide service where people can hire us any time of the year, winter, summer, uh, to take them out. It's an early morning excursion. We just kind of load up your family or your, your group and, and and take you out to try to see wolves and other wildlife. You know, we never ignore the other fun animals <laughs> that are in the park. Um but, you know, usually we're done by the heat of the day, the middle of the day, wolves aren't really active anyway, we're just kind of done by then. And so it, it, it's an easy service to fit into your vacation plans if you have have a lot in your mind. Um, but we'll do it multiple days or whatever. If you want to see different areas or try to see different wolf packs uh, or have a very depthy, diverse experience, um, then by all means, hire us for, for multiple days. Uh, our guides. Um, again are are very talented at what they do they they know their information they know how to to find and observe these guys um, and that a lot of their information does go out on our social media posts so so you can find us on Facebook at Yellowstone Wolf tracker uh, We're on Instagram at wolf tracker uh, and so those are kind of the funnest places to see some of the most recent material that we're getting, you know, pictures, uh, of wildlife, uh, little video clips, a lot of which interestingly are taken through, uh, our spotting scope. So, so, so often, you know, we're not really that close to these animals. We're, we're getting this, uh, material just by observing them from, from a distance. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think that probably covers it.
0: Awesome. That's great. Nathan, thank you so much for for joining us uh on on Christmas Eve. Uh happy holidays to you, to Linda, to everybody uh, out there. And uh love to have you back on, you know, maybe in the new year and we'll we'll discuss some more things that that are coming down the pike um with wolves and elk and things like that. So I I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And hopefully
2: to meet you uh in the spring at some point. We're yeah. we're thinking about heading out there.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, look us up if you're in our neighborhood. Uh, I would also say that I really appreciate Wolf Connections. Someday I'll get to visit you all. Mm-hmm. Um, Teo and Renee are good friends. Uh, Leo Leckie, Uh Darn you guys for stealing Leo from us. <laughs> uh, Leo worked for us. <laughs> as just an amazing guide for many, many years. Um, he was a favorite among among us and, and the guests. And, and, you know, we actually call him Leo Legend now because uh, the, the, guy, the new guys are like, oh, wow, Leo used to work here. So, <laughs> so we miss him, but we're glad that Wolf Connections have him. Um, but yeah, we love you guys and the work you do. And someday I'll get to come and visit you and, and experience what you're doing there. And I look forward to that.
2: Yeah, yeah, please do.
0: Absolutely, please do. And yeah, we'll make it out there if we ever, you know, get this trip coordinated. We'll, uh, nah, we will. You'll be one of our, you'll be one of our emails and phone calls, and we'll, we'll make it happen.
1: Awesome. Yeah, we'd love to see you out here and share what we have going out here. I think you guys will love it, of course. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Thank you so much, really? Nathan. Again, how's, how's to all of you out there? And we will talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye.